There was a news story in India this week, perhaps you heard it, about an ATM that was malfunctioning and they brought in the technician who opened it up and discovered that her rat had made its nest in there and had eaten 17,000 American dollars is the equivalent, uh, 12,000 lakh, about 17,000 American dollars. The rat had done this by getting into the ATM and making it into a nest. It just, he shredded the money and built nests, and the ATM had layers in it for different denominations of currency, and he built a, a nest that wove up and down the different layers. There's incredible pictures online. Don't look them up now of this. Um, uh, of this, this and you open up, and it's just shreds of money everywhere. It looks like a, a rat's nest, I guess, is what it would look like. And it's unclear how the rat was able to get in and out of the the ATM, the best guess is that it had made its way in and was just living off of the money in there. There's enough nutrients in the paper that it was able to survive for a while until, and this is the story I read, suggested that the ink in the money is what ended up poisoning him and killing him from eating the ink. And this is in the Ansem Providence of India, and this Ansem rat has a, a parable for us in our American rat race, I think. And we so quickly put our affection and our thoughts and our, our hope in money. We think that money and the physical things of this world can feed us and can give us a place to live. We make our nest out of it. But the truth is, well, while we think it might give us enough nutrition to live, the truth is that it actually kills us. And that's what happens to the person who loves money. They think that it's giving them nutrients, but the truth is it's killing them. The ink is poisoning them and they pass away. That's what James is warning against here in James 5 verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl, he says. This phrase, come now, it's a phrase he's used already many times in James. It's a phrase of drawing you in, gather near to him. And specifically, he's addressing the rich. Now, the Bible has two different categories of, of rich. There's two different classes of rich people in the world. There's the faithless rich that trust in their money and use their money for their own means. And then there's the believing rich who are generous with, with their money and recognize that God has given them wealth for the purpose of advancing the gospel and leveraging it for the kingdom. The believing rich are described in 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through around 20. The unbelieving rich you could see described here. Now, very critical distinction for you to have in your mind before we look at this passage. The difference between the believing and the unbelieving rich is not their attendance in church. And we're tempted to think that. We're tempted to think that the believing rich are the Christians that are in church and the unbelieving rich are those that are in the world. That's not the distinction. As is evidenced by James' expression here, come now. He's calling his listeners, those who are in the, the church that he's writing to, he's calling them to gather around and he's addressing the rich people in that huddle. He's like the coach there gathering his team and he's saying, now bring it together, guys. Some of you are rich. I want you to listen up. In other words, the unbelieving rich are those that are, some of those are in the church. Now, how does one identify themselves as that category? First of all, there's this irony in the United States that we're the wealthiest, wealthiest culture, wealthiest country ever. We have more disposable income than ever, and yet most Americans wouldn't call themselves rich. And then we quickly give ourselves an out from this kind of passage because we say, oh, I'm not rich. That other person I know, he's rich. My neighbor, I mean, that guy is loaded. See his cars? Not me, though. Not me. Barely have enough to get the oil change in my BMW. I mean, I'm just <laughs> trying my hardest here. When the Bible talks about 
the word, the concept of rich. The Bible defines rich as having more than you need. And a person with food for today is not rich. The person for food to tomorrow is. And so by that standard, you are wealthy. For the most part, our church is filled with the rich. Now, let me say this also. Our church is not just filled with rich people. Our church is filled with very generous rich people. This is a very generous church. This passage, I'm not choosing this passage to be corrective in any way. Uh, I'm very thankful for the wealthy people that have been brought to Emmanuel, even those whose wealth exceeds most others in our congregation. Our church is marked by generous givers. You guys give very generously week in and week out. And I'm so grateful the Lord has blessed our congregation with so many generous and, and wealthy people. This is the passage because it's the next passage in James. And I hope that the Lord does apply it to your hearts. And the best way to do that is for you to understand the difference between the believing and the unbelieving rich here is not their attendance in church. Rather, it is how they are using their money. Are they marked with generosity or are they marked by trusting their wealth? And how do you know if somebody trusts their money? Well, what do they do with it? Do they guard it? Do they hoard it? Do they act as if it's the most important thing in their life? Do they make other decisions in light of their money? Or do they view their money as secondary to their relationship with Christ? Do they view their money as something to be leveraged to advance the gospel? That's the distinction. And so James here is addressing the rich. And it's not the first time he's addressed the rich in his book. This isn't coming out of nowhere. Back in chapter 1, he said the rich have a glory like a flower. It's pretty for a moment... It can even be watered to extend it a little bit, but then it's done and it's dead and you throw it away. In chapter 2, he says, are not the rich the ones who drag you into court? Aren't the rich the ones who, generally speaking, are persecuting believers? Persecution comes out of a position of ability, a position of disposable income. You have to have a lot of time on your hands to go about a life of persecution. And that's his point back in chapter 2. But now in chapter 5, he's ending his book by bringing it home. In chapter 5, he's saying, now you, now that you've seen that the rich have their glory fade, now that you've seen that the rich are often those who are opposed to the gospel, now you look in the mirror and you see if you yourself have this love of money in your heart. Let me give you that as our outline this morning. Four reasons to kill the love of money. Four reasons to go to war against the love of money. The love of money is a powerful poison that works in your heart. It, it's like the rat. It brings poison in here and it can spread. It's contagious. It spreads like gangrene in the body. When a person loves money and puts their confidence in money, it produces other sins in them and those sins spread. They are contagious. This is what Paul means, 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So many other sins come from a love of money. Now, Paul doesn't say that love of money is the root of all evil. He's often misquoted that way. He says it's a root of all kinds of evil. Nevertheless, that misquotation is pretty true. <laughs> the love of money is a root of most evil, it seems, can be traced back to it. Now, you have to actually go to war against the love of money in your heart, especially in our American materialistic culture. Because if you just say, I'm just going to kind of ignore money. I'm going to treat my money like it's not a danger or it's not a, a friend. I'm just going to kind of ignore it and just live my life and just coast through things. Money, the love of money has a gravitational pull to it. And it pulls your heart towards sin. 
It pulls your heart towards materialism. Unless you're active in how you go to war against it, it will corrode your life. And so you need to attack the love of money. You need to squash it where you find it. There's four reasons why. First, the love of money is the enemy of happiness. The love of money is the enemy of happiness. <laughs> You've heard it said that money talks. Well, all it ever says to me is goodbye, it seems. <laughs> you know this, that the person who pursues the love of money, are they satisfied by it? Of course not. Of course not. Money doesn't satisfy. It cannot produce a joy in your life. And it's this weird law of diminishing returns. Once you start down the road of pursuing satisfaction through wealth, you need more of it to continually satisfy you. And, of course, it becomes harder and harder to get. Exponentially, it works in the negative. The more you live for the love of money, the more uh, miserable you become. And James wants you to realize that it's happening to you now. That's chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl. For the miseries, present tense, that are coming upon you. Right now, the, minister, the miseries of your love of money, you should be experiencing them and you should be weeping and howling because of them. That phrase, weep and howl or weep and wail, some translations say, it literally means to weep by wailing, to cry aloud, to demonstrate your mournfulness with a volume to it. It's a phrase that's used of the professional mourners in the New Testament. Some funerals would hire out professional mourners, imagine that. And they would pay them to come, they would be loud, they would rip their clothes, they would shriek and wail. And James is saying to the rich, you should be doing this about your own life now. And don't farm this out either. Don't hire somebody else to come mourn for your life. You mourn for it now. Why would the rich person need to mourn now? Because they're suffering under the guilt and the weight of their own love of money. Their materialism is a cancer that's destroying them. They should be in suffering because of it. They should be provoked in pain because of their love for materialism. But they're just too callous. Their senses are too deadened to realize it. So James is trying to wake them up. Hey, you who live for money, you should be weeping and wailing. Isaiah 13, verse 6, wail for the day of the Lord is near. That's where this phrase comes from. I think James is borrowing it from there. Wail for the day of the Lord is near. God is coming and he will judge people and he will bring suffering to people. And you now, because of your love for materialism, should be experiencing that judgment. They are coming upon you right now. Now why does the person who loves money, why is his life so miserable? Why should he weep and howl? Because the thing he's putting his love and his affections in doesn't help him. It hurts him. It decays. It rusts. It rots. Notice he says in verse 2, your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. There's this desire to pass along your, your wealth. The, you, this is always the justification. You want to save your wealth. You want to accumulate your wealth. You want to build bigger barns so that you can give it to your kids. That's the justification. So it's worth hoarding now so that you can pass it along to your kids. I mean, after all, your kids deserve that, don't they? That's the, the logic of the hoarder. That's the logic of the greedy person, the one who loves money. Sometimes they use it on themselves. But most of the time, they, they justify it by saying, I just want to make sure my kids are comfortable. That's the least I can do. And the Bible has a lot of warnings about this. Solomon says that the person who tries to pass along their wealth to their kids will make their kids miserable. The kids will get the wealth that will make them miserable, 
or they'll be foolish with it because the kids didn't, if you worked for your wealth and you earned it by working hard and having good business instincts and, and a good work ethic, you give it to your kids. Your kids don't have that instinct. They don't have that work ethic because they didn't have to work for it. This is the nature of growing up in comfort, that you have this sense of uh, expectancy, entitlement. You deserve these things. This is the way the world works. Is there's, there's always the vacation to go on. It's what I deserve. It's always been there. And this, the kid that grows up in that, in that category, he loses his horizons. He doesn't understand what wealth really means. He doesn't, really, he doesn't have a scope of value. And then you give a person without that work ethic, without that scope of value, without those horizons, a lot of money. And what's going to happen to it? Solomon says he'll lose it. He'll be foolish with it. You would have had the chance to divest yourself wisely in your life. Instead, you didn't. You hoarded it to give it to your kids. And your kids will squander it because they don't have your work ethic. They didn't need it. Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. That's not a promise. It's not a guarantee. It's just, generally speaking, that's what happens. It is possible to teach your kids a work ethic. It is possible to teach your kids discipline and what money means in life. It is possible. It's just really hard, and most people don't do it, is Solomon's point. But let's say you will do it. You're going to hoard your money to pass it along to your kids, and you're going to teach them work ethic. Now what do you do? How do you pass it along? Do you put it under your mattress? I mean, just physically, practically, what do you do with it? And this is a bigger problem in the old world than it is now. In the life of Christ, what would a family do? I mean, there's no stocks then. There's no municipal bonds. So people would buy gold and silver. The gold then that was for sale was not highly refined. It was very susceptible to corrosion. Silver often corrodes as well. And so you're putting your hope in your life around things that are literally decaying in front of you. So how sad is it to live for that kind of resources and then have nothing to pass along? Or some people would buy clothes. They'd buy fancy clothes and think, I'll pass the, the, the dress along or I'll pass the suit along, the tunic along, and that'll be how I'm handing off my inheritance. There's some practical difficulties with that. I mean, imagine in our culture, a wedding dress, a lot of money, a ridiculous amount of money. So you spend a ridiculous amount of money on your wedding dress, but this is how you justify it. You say, okay, I know this is unwise. I know it's not good stewardship, but I'm going to do it because my daughter will wear the dress one day, and then my granddaughter will. That's your plan. So that makes it totally worth it because it'll be worn three times. Totally worth it. So after you wear it, you put it in the garment bag, and you hang it in your closet, and there it will stay. And you think, oh, you know, I'll check on it and I'll put the mothballs in or take the mothballs out or whatever you do with them, I don't know. And you forget about it after a while and then 20 years later, it's time for round two of that dress and you take it out and you open it up and moths fly out. <laughs> Is that mildew I smell? Are there actual holes in it? Oh, did the hanger turn it this way? I thought I got those hangers that didn't do it. It's all crooked and there's holes in it and there's mildew and there's cobwebs and it smells and I think it's faded and that, is that supposed to be white? It's ivory. I don't, it's not worth anything anymore. And you had put your wealth in there. Now, I mean, that's kind of a humorous analogy for our standards. Now, this is what was really happening in the life of Christ. People would put their wealth into clothes to try to pass them along, but they would decay. They would get eaten by moths. In our own culture, you know, we have the kind of inheritance tax, the idea there that you save up to pass along to your kids and you're taxed 30% on it or whatever it is. I looked it up this week and there's actually an $11 million exception clause, so 
think most of us will be safe. (laughs) But there's the idea that even in that, it's difficult to pass along wealth without it being taxed. So how are you supposed to accumulate wealth and then get rid of it? That becomes the question. When I was in seminary, I lived in a a prefabricated A-frame. What that means, an A-frame, the house with the big thing on top, and I slept on the very top, tippity top of it. This is a prefab one, which meant it was delivered in two pieces on a truck and then put together like from a kit kind of thing. This is the most rickety thing you can imagine. When the wind blew, the whole thing shook. This is in Los Angeles, too. This is not up in the Alps or anything. This is in L.A. You know, we didn't have recessed lighting. We had to hang lights with bailing wire on the ceiling and then run a cord to outlets that were in the ceiling. I mean, I cannot believe this thing didn't burn down. Our refrigerator literally fell through the floor one day. (laughs) Through the floor, into the crawl space. And we just left it there for, I think, a year. It stayed in, you know, what a mess. And you think, there's a story behind this. And it turns out there was. The property that we were living on belonged to the family, this, actually this lady, who allowed the movie E.T., which I have not seen, but she allowed the movie E.T. to be filmed in her property, Tahunga, which is a part of Los Angeles, on her property. And so they gave her a lot of money to use her house for this and her yard for this. And she then took that money and bought this A-frame And all of the ambulances in that movie, apparently there's a scene where there's a long line of ambulances. She bought them all. They let them go for a cheap price because they didn't need them anymore. The movie was over. She then filled her yard with these ambulances. So I lived in a prefabricated A-frame with a yard filled with ambulances in seminary. (laughs) She then stored things in the ambulances, like newspapers and recycling and all kinds of trinkets. They were filled. So the yard outside the prefabricated A-frame, had ambulances. I opened the door one time and just newspapers and plastic bottles and all kinds of stuff fell out. And the, things, the paper was so faded you couldn't read it anymore. And it was, I mean, it was a, hor- it's a very sad situation that's also simultaneously somewhat comical. The ambulances from E.T. used for hoarding. And we tried to help her. The fire department had to come into her house once to try to get her and they were moving all kinds of stuff out. And it was just a very, very sad situation. And You know, that's what everybody who lives for wealth is like. (laughs) You might think you're more refined than newspapers in the back of old ambulances in your front yard, but not really, not by much. That's the sad nature of the person who lives for wealth. What you hoard is decaying. Clothes that were once fine are now moth-ridden. Jewels that you thought were precious are lost or stolen or rusted. And even if you do figure out how to accumulate wealth and pass it on to your kids, they will likely squander it because they lack your wisdom. That's what wealth is like. Every product ever made will decay. Every technology you think you need to be happy will be outdated. And here's the the great irony with the person who's materialistic. That treasure you think you need, that car you think you need, or that computer, or that TV, or that phone, or whatever technological device you think you need, that will be outdated, and it will be outdated before the person who invented it dies. I mean, it it won't even outlive that person. So how silly is it for you to live for it? This is why the love of money is so devastating. It never delivers. It's a drug that once injected in your body... It never produces happiness. It only produces disease. 
Now, in our Christian evangelical culture, it's not so much seen, the love of money is not so much seen in like just rank materialism, although that is a threat, I think. There is the materialistic tendency. It comes from our culture, but that's not the general way it's seen. And we're too refined to say, you know what, I'm living for money and money's going to make me happy. I don't think we would say that. Where you see this danger in our own culture is through believing the lifestyle of the world. Our world presents a certain lifestyle and we believe it and we think this is necessary for me to give to my family, for my family to be happy. That's where you see it in our culture. We think unless I have this house with this kind of yard and this school district and this kind of car with these kind of vacations, then I'm not being a good dad or mom to my kid. My family needs that. It's what the world presents to us. It's what we need in order for a family to be happy. That's materialism. That's the love of money. But we don't recognize it as such. We're, we're immune to it, to seeing it, because we're, in it. we're the fish in the water. We just swim in it. And we don't realize the sacrifices that we make for our families for no reason. Parents sacrifice time with their kids so that both parents can work. So they can afford the right house, the right school district, the right yard, the right car, etc. Kids are not raised in the home, but outside the home. So that you can provide what you think your kids need to be happy. And you never stop to ask yourself, or you seldom stop to ask yourself, is it actually making me or my wife happy? Is it actually making my kids happy? Would they rather have parents that spend time with them? Would they rather be Raised by mom and in a home where they're cared for, would they rather have raised outside the home but have a sweet yard? It's worth asking the question. We sometimes don't ask it because our culture presents the dual income family as the only appropriate way to raise kids. And when you buy that lie and you take your kids through that rat race to make them happy, you see how the love of materialism has infected even our evangelical culture. I hope, brothers and sisters, that you have your eyes open to what Jesus calls the deceitfulness of riches. You think that you need certain, a certain lifestyle standard to be a good mom or dad? No, you do not. No, you do not. Your main priority as a parent is to teach your kids the fear and admonition of the Lord. Period. That's it. Please don't sacrifice that by showing them, you know, there's other things that the world can provide that are necessary to having a happy family. Because it just doesn't deliver. Like the rat in the rat race, he finally gets off his exercise wheel. He's just as miserable as when he stepped on it. Well, the first reason to go to war against the love of money is it's actually the enemy of happiness. The second reason is because it's the enemy of holiness. It's the enemy of holiness. Verse 3, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days, James says. That phrase, last days, is a phrase the New Testament uses for the church. It's the church age. Starting at Pentecost, ending at the rapture, the New Testament calls that the last days. The idea is that you're in a strategic time of world history. You, God, you could have been born before the flood. You could have been born before nations. You could have been born in the age of the temple where God dwelled in the temple in Israel. You could have been born in the millennial kingdom. Lots of options for you. Instead, you're born here. What's unique about this age? What's unique about this age is that you can use your wealth to advance the gospel to the nations. Something that didn't happen in the past and won't happen in the future. It's now. 
So how sad would it be if somebody has that kind of wealth and doesn't see the unique time in redemptive history in which they live? So James says, your, your golden is corroding. It's being used as evidence against you that you don't care about expanding the gospel in the world. What do you care about instead? The, I mean, the stuff that you have that's rotting. He gives you an example. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you've kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. So the scenario, you hired the day laborer to mow your grass. You didn't pay him. I'm sure you justified it in some way. I mean, let's make this a more modern analogy here. You've got a bunch of leaves in your yard right now? <laughs> Probably. Say amen. <laughs> so you go and you hire some people from Home Depot to clean you know, the Home Depot parking lot. You throw them in the back of your truck, drive to your house. I'll pay you X amount of money to clean the leaves out of, my, out of my yard. People on my street do this. This is a common thing. Pay the money to clean the leaves. So they work. You tell them such and such money. They work all day. And you know what? The end of the day comes and they got to go home. And the leaves are not quite done. Okay, they've got 75% of it done. So you know what? I'm not going to pay you 75% of your pay. I'm not going to pay you anything until you come back tomorrow and finish the job. Hey, learn a work ethic. If you don't like it, get a real job. That's the attitude that you have towards them. And you send them away without a dollar in their pocket. After they worked for you all day, you send them away. And say, hey, I'll pay you when you come back tomorrow and you finish it. All right. Well, first of all, what you're doing there is, I mean, it's sinful. It's expressly forbidden by Leviticus 19, verse 13, Deuteronomy 24, verse 14. If a day laborer works for you, give him that money that day, the Bible commands. Why? Because he needs it. I mean, has it occurred to you that he actually needs that money? That's why he's a day laborer. He needs that money that day. The difference between a day laborer and a job is a job is regular. You're showing up to work and you expect to be paid every two weeks and that's what you negotiated or every month, whatever it is. Whatever it is, that's fine. A day laborer is different. He needs the money that day. So if you hire a day laborer, the Bible says pay him that day. But the rich person, just like he doesn't realize he's miserable in verses 1 and 2, he doesn't realize he's sinning in verses 3 and 4. He doesn't realize it. He says, hey, I paid him to do the leaves. They didn't do it. I'll see him tomorrow. And maybe they come back tomorrow and they just didn't do that good of a job. You're like, just can't find good help these days. I would say they did 80% of a job. I'll pay them 80% of the money. Or you say, I'm not going to pay them at all. Until they do it right, they don't get their pay. There, that'll teach them. And the person who does this actually thinks he's in the right. He thinks I'm the one who's being victimized by not being able to find good help these days. So hard to live in this world. People don't want to work for an honest dollar. That's the attitude the rich person has. And what's the day laborer going to do? Is he going to call the police? Is he going to sue you? He, doesn't have, he has, has no recourse at all. Except stealing your lawnmower. <laughs> he has no recourse. So what are you supposed to do? James says, this is sin. Now his point is not that he's suddenly you know, motivated by workers' rights right here. James's point is to see, for you to see the callousness. Your own heart is dead towards the urgency of the gospel. You're using your money on your leaves instead of advancing the gospel. I mean, that's the first part here. Your heart is dead towards living in the last days. You don't realize the preciousness of your situation in the world, the preciousness of the gospel. You don't realize that your heart is hardened to it. If your heart is hardened to the preciousness of the gospel, it will produce other sins in other places also. You'll be hardened to other things in life. You'll sin in other places beyond just your love for money. The love of money is the enemy of holiness because it produces other sins in your life. It provokes you to evil. Adam's sin is the seed of sin. 
The love of money is the root of sin. And all these other manifestations of it, like ripping off day laborers, that's the fruit of sin. All manner of covetousness, pride, materialism, human exploitation comes out of the heart that's materialistic. And again, the person doesn't realize it. They think, hey, I'm just being a good steward over my cash. I recently watched an uh, investigative report from a local news station that put undercover cameras in a car and left a $20 bill in the backseat of the car and took it to different local car washes to catch the car wash guys vacuuming the car out, stealing the $20. And it was 50-50. Half of the car wash places they took it to stole the 20 bucks. Half of them, well, a couple of them put it in the glove box for them or put it in the center console. And another few guys ran it back to them. They're like, you left money in your car. Do I get a tip for that? But half of them stole it. And it was funny to watch the guy come, did you steal $20 from the car? No, no, no. I have video right here. Is that you? The person who steals the $20 from the backseat of the car, is that an eighth commandment violation or a first commandment violation? Ask yourself the question that way. What's this problem? And obviously it's both. It's a violation of both the eighth and the first commandment. But the real heart, the root of this is the first commandment. That you worship something other than God. And that leads to violations of all the other commandments. I mean, all the other commandments flow out of you worshiping something other than God. And that's true with the love of money. It produces theft. It produces being disobedient to your parents. It produces murder, which we'll see in the next verse. It produces lying, bearing false witness. So many sins flow from the love of money. It's the enemy of holiness. Thirdly, kill the love of money in your life because it's the enemy of heaven. It's the enemy of happiness. It's the enemy of holiness. And thirdly, it's the enemy of heaven. James says, the cries in the middle of verse 4 of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. That phrase, Lord of hosts, is an Old Testament phrase for God coming with his angel armies to judge the world. If you have the New American Standard, it translates it, the Lord of Sabaoth. It just renders the word across because James doesn't use the, the Greek word for Lord of hosts. He just transliterates the Hebrew word, Lord Sabaoth. So that's why some translations carry it across. I think it's fine to translate it, Lord of hosts, as the ESV does here. The idea is that God is coming with his angel armies to judge the world. And he's coming in part because of the cries of people who have been exploited because of the love of money. They're crying out to God. They can't go to the police. They go to God. God hears their cries. God will come and avenge them. I mean, so much of this passage here, it's using the language of hell. He says in verse 1, weep and howl for the miseries coming upon you. He describes in uh, verse 3, your flesh is being eaten like fire. Down in verse 5, your heart is getting fat for a day of slaughter. I mean, this language is intended to describe hell. The phrase, Lord Sabaoth, comes from Isaiah 22, verse 14. Yahweh of hosts has revealed himself in my ears, saying, this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die. The idea is that judgment is already on its way. Isaiah 30, verse 27. The name of Yahweh comes from afar, burning with his anger, thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury. His tongue is like a devouring fire. God is coming with fiery mouth, fiery tongue, fiery lips to consume those who love money. Luke 6, verse 24. Woe to you who are rich, Jesus says, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, because you will be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Matthew 13, 42 describes hell as a fiery furnace. 
where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, why does the love of money mandate hell? Because, again, it's a first commandment issue. You've exchanged worshiping your God instead to worship yourself or materialism or cash. Thus, hell is a just punishment for the rejection of the God of the universe. There's obviously a great reversal kind of idiom here. Verse 5, you lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've, you've, you've had a cush life. And you think it'll be a cush afterlife also. After all, you've grown accustomed to it. Certainly God would understand that. The truth is you lived in self-indulgence. The image here is a powerful one. You fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. The image is of a cow that gets so fat he can't even move anymore. He's only fit to be slaughtered. Or the Israelites would raise pigs. I know they weren't supposed to, but they did. And it's possible for pigs to get so fat they can barely move. They can barely get to the trough and back to the straw again. And they're fit for nothing except for the slaughter. That's the image James uses here. Your materialism, your quest for happiness by the things this world can provide. The right car, the right house, the right vacation, the right clothes, the right entertainment, the right technology. You're just making your heart fatter and fatter and fatter. You'll have a grotesquely obese heart. (laughs) That's not capable of worship anymore. It's only capable of slaughter. That's all that it's good for. You fed it so much it can't even walk. You've lived luxuriously in selfish pleasure. It's the image of someone who's lived in unrestrained hoarding. And if they're unrestrained in hoarding, they'll be unrestrained in other areas of life as well, deserving of God's judgment. Well, you should kill the love of money because it's the enemy of happiness, the enemy of holiness, the enemy of heaven. And fourthly, it's the enemy of Christ. Verse, seven, or verse 6, you've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He doesn't even resist you. That phrase, the righteous person, it's used many times in the New Testament. It always refers to Christ. He's the righteous one. Acts 3, verse 14. This is Peter talking that you could have had any criminal released. But instead, you denied the righteous one his freedom and you asked for a murderer to be released instead. Acts 7, verse 52, Stephen's speech before they execute him. He says, your forefathers, they killed all the prophets, and they also betrayed the righteous one, Jesus, too. Paul, in Acts 22, verse 14, God appointed a righteous one to reveal his works and speak his words. Why does James use that phrase here? Because it's the love of money that is one of the motivating factors that Jesus was killed. And you think, I thought he was killed because he always made himself out to be God. yes. But there's lots of people who are deranged and think they're God. What made Jesus different, they knew he was speaking the truth. The second thing is he was a threat to their money. I mean, he, first of all, the immediate cause, Judas. Judas betrayed him for pieces of silver. Okay, so that's obvious. But why did Judas betray him? Do you remember? Well, because the lady came in Mark's gospel, broke the perfume over Jesus' feet. And Judas was so upset. He said that money could have been sold and given to the poor. And Mark lets you know, Judas didn't care about the poor. He kept the treasure bag. He wanted the money for himself. And so at that moment, he decided to betray Jesus. He couldn't understand why people were using, and notice the dynamic here. People were using their money to worship Christ, and that drove the greedy person crazy. How dare you use your money for Christ? Rather use it for me. And then, of course, the Pharisees themselves, Jesus turned over the temple, the tables in the temple twice, drove out their money changers in Passover week, the busiest shopping day of the year, 
closing them all on Black Friday kind of thing. And they said, this can't be. And so they purposed to put him to death. Now here's the irony here with the, the wealthy person. He's unaware about how miserable he is by how he uses his money. He's unaware by how sinful he is because he's so self-righteous. He's unaware of what awaits him in the next life because he's so used to comfort here. He's also unaware of how his love for money contributed to the death of Christ. This is a very basic Christian thing. You understand that God killed Jesus, the Jews betrayed him and had him murdered, but you also understand that your own sin is what was placed on him. It was your sin that held him there. And so every Christian gets that. I am responsible for killing Jesus. It was my sin that put him to the cross. You have to understand that. But the wealthy person thinks he's innocent. He doesn't see how his love for materialism was an immediate and approximate cause behind Jesus' death. He doesn't see him in Judas. He doesn't see him in the Pharisees that saw Jesus as a threat. He doesn't see how his love of money contributes to the death of Jesus at all. His heart is so callous to how he's robbed himself of happiness through it. His heart is so callous about how much sin he engages in because of it. His heart is so callous about the realities of hell because of his love for money. And now his heart is so callous towards the gospel because he doesn't see how his sin led Jesus to the cross. I hope you see that the cataclysmic forces of our culture drive you to love lifestyle, drive you to love money. And that the love of money can't bear it. You know, some idols can't bear the weight you put on them because they weren't designed for it. The person who lives for their family eventually alienates their family because their family's not strong enough to hold their expectations. The person who lives for their career eventually hates their career because the career is not strong enough to hold all those expectations. Money functions differently, though. Money fails you not because it's not strong enough to hold your expectations. Money fails you because there's no floor to it. There's no place the support beams go down. It's not that it can't hold you. It's just that there's no floor. There's nothing to hold. You can put all your affections, all your anticipation, all your worship in the pit of money, and it just keeps going down. You'll never bottom out. There's no floor underneath it. This is why Jesus says, Matthew 6, verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Yes, money talks, and yes, it mostly says goodbye. What will it say to you at the judgment seat? You know, for the person who lives for the materialism in this life, they say goodbye to their money and it just, at the judgment seat, it will stand, as James says, as evidenced against you. But for the person who leverages their money to bring the gospel into the world, who's generous with their money, they don't even say goodbye to money forever. They say goodbye to it now and it'll be waiting for them in heaven. They say goodbye now and to use Jesus' language, their money goes in the world and it makes friends for them in heaven. You know, I think of the person who, somebody paid my rent through seminary in that prefabricated A-frame. They paid my rent, 200 bucks a month. They paid it all the way through seminary. He's never met you. You've never met him. But his generosity enabled me to be a pastor. In heaven one day, if you appreciate that, you could say thanks to him. <laughs> all that money he spent, he didn't say goodbye to it. He just said until later. Jesus says you can use your money to store it for yourselves, friends in heaven. That you'll get there and you'll meet people that are there because of how you use your money. 
It's remarkable. The materialistic person will have no such joy. Lord, we're thankful that you have given us wealth to be used, to be leveraged, and to advance the gospel in the world. We know the person who doesn't care for his family is worse than an unbeliever. So I have confidence, Lord, that as those in this congregation hear this message, they will think through how to care for the needs of their family, of course. But I pray that we would look hard and long into the mirror of your word, that we would be convicted by any sin that is revealed there, that we would purpose in our life to be generous, to not be those that trust money for happiness, to not be those who should weep and howl for their miseries, but to be those who have joy, joy and generosity through giving because of the joy you've given us through Jesus Christ. We give you thanks for him. In his name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.